Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And here we are, another episode, in keeping with the theme, discussing interesting, unusual, somewhat outside-the-box ideas, dancing along the line between physics and spirituality, perhaps. You could say science and spirituality, which involve the issue of consciousness, the issue of psychology, the experience of being. My guest this episode is Ulysse Di Corpo, who is an advocate for a theory called syntropy, which is a counterpoint to entropy. It has wonderful resonances in many different directions. It has deep roots in physics, but is uh, revelatory in its implications for our own personal lives, and the choices we make. I don't want to spend too much more time in this introduction, but I do want to thank my friend Tim for bringing Syntropy to my attention. In this episode, we discuss a wide range of different things, and if you think that you've got the basic idea of the story by listening to the first 20 minutes or so, you will have missed a lot. This goes some places that I really was not expecting, and there's some rather intense and profound moments to be found in the latter half of the discussion, some of which is rather controversial. Leave it at that for now. If you find this program to be worth your time, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in whatever way you can. Uh, those who support the show on Patreon or S Substack can call a meeting anytime they like. That's the thing I've come up with, a perk, if you like, for those who support the show. If you have something you want to discuss, whether it's on a subject discussed here or really anything else, you can call a meeting and I will notify others on the Substack and in the Patreon. So far, no one has taken me up on this. Had a close call with someone, but, uh, but it never fully materialized. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens when we just kind of discuss free form? I suppose we'll either find out or we won't. And uh, so that would be uh, taijireality.substack.com or patreon.com slash taijireality. And those of you listening on Apple Podcasts, if you would be so kind as to either write a review or hit those stars, apparently that does something uh, akin to those of you on YouTube hitting the like and subscribe buttons, kicking those algorithms into gear. For what purpose, only God can say. And now without further ado, I hope you'll enjoy the following discussion between myself and Ulysse Di Corpo on the subject of syntropy. Oh. So, how shall we begin? There's, there's a... Uh... There's a beautiful elegance to the theory that you're putting forth in this world. And there's a lot of correspondence with many of the things that I'm interested in and that we discuss on this program quite often, which I would characterize as being the intersection between science and spirituality, if you like. Yes. A way of being able to envision the integration of consciousness and 
um, and you know the operations of the material world. So would you like to kind of give an overview of, of what it is that you've been putting forth and, uh, and we can kind of take it from there? Well, um, as you said, there is an interplay between science and the uh, spiritual and existential side. Well, uh, it all started in 1977 when I had a very deep existential crisis and I was not able to explain uh, these uh, strong feelings of anxiety and depression through a uh, materialistic point of view. Uh, and suddenly I realized that beside diverging energy, there was also a converging energy that I could see in gravity. And adding this uh, third element in my way of seeing reality, uh, I suddenly had an explanation of what anxiety and depression were about. Well, I, I will not get into this point now because it is uh, maybe quite long, but I want to say what is the mathematical uh, model from which I start now. Uh, as everyone knows, we associate the equation E equal MC square to uh, Albert Einstein, but this equation had been uh, published before it was published the first time in 1890 by Oliver Hefside, then by Henry Poincaré, and in 1903 by Olinto de Preto. Olinto de Preto was a very good friend of the father of Albert Einstein, they worked together. And it seems that the equation arrived to Albert Einstein through his father. But there was a problem with this equation. It did not consider uh, the momentum, which is also a part of energy. So what Einstein did, he added the momentum in the equation and uh, he obtained the energy momentum mass equation, which is a double order equation. Uh, so it has two solutions for energy. And since we have time in the momentum, one solution describes energy that diverges forward in time. And the other one describes energy that diverges backward in time. For us moving forward in time, this Backward in time, diverging energy is converging energy. Well, in 1905, when Einstein developed this equation, it was totally unacceptable that the future could retroact into the past. So what he had to do was to devise a way to eliminate the backward in time solution of energy. And what Einstein did was to say, well, physical objects uh, have a speed which is very, very limited compared to the speed of light. So we can consider the momentum equal to zero. When you consider the momentum equal to zero, you go back to the E equal MC square equation. But uh, 20 years after, in quantum mechanics, uh, in, they discovered that particles have a spin. 
And the spin of these particles, the spin of the electron is uh, so fast that it nears the speed of light. So in quantum mechanics, it is necessary to use the energy momentum mass equation with its dual solution. And, uh, and we get uh, always, uh, say, mm, we have waves and particles. We have electrons and anti-electrons. And uh, the solution are always two. And this are fascinated many physicists in the 1920s because it opened a totally different view of reality, a view where you don't have only causality that acts from the past, but you have also another type of causality that acts from the future that for us is more like attractors that guide us towards final ends. Well, um, a big discussion uh, started in the 1920s about this dual solution. Uh, Dirac developed his equation with uh, electrons and neg electrons. And uh, Wolfgang Pauli also uh, was working on this dual solution. But at a certain point, two very charismatic physicists, which were Bohr and Heisenberg, they just said, no, it is impossible. Uh, we cannot accept that the future can retract uh, towards the past. And so it was forbidden to, to work on this backward in time solution. And whoever was trying to work on it was discredited, was censored, was sent away from the academia, could not go to conferences or publish. Well, what happened was that in 1941, a mathematician that was named Luigi Fantapier, uh, he was very well known among physicists to the point that in 1951, uh, Oppenheimer invited him to go to the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton and work directly with Einstein. Well, what Fantapier said, I'm a mathematician, I'm not a physicist. I want to see what this dual solution means. And I started working on the mathematical properties of the two solutions. And he found that the forward in time property uh, describes energy that dissipates in the environment. And this is well described by the law of entropy. And it describes uh, the material side of reality. The backward in time solution uh, describes the properties of life. There is increase of energy, differentiation structure, uh, complexity. And so what uh, Fantapier uh, suggested was a um, unitary theory of the physical and biological world in which the physical world is governed by the forward in time solution of energy, whereas the biological world is governed by the negative solution of energy. Hmm. Now, what it is interesting is that we cannot see the future. And so whatever is caused by this backward in time solution of energy is invisible to us. 
That would be, for example, the reason why gravity is invisible, because according to this model, gravity would be an energy that diverges backward in time. And for us, moving forward in time is a converging energy. Well, uh, what this means is that the main properties of life, like consciousness, but also life energy, would be invisible. And since they depend on the future, they cannot be studied in the classical cause and effect way that we uh, use uh, when we set up experiments. So the difficulty that uh, Luigi Fantapie had uh, with this theory was that he was not able to come out with any experimental proof of, of his theory. Well, in, in the 50s, um, all his works were censored on this topic of syntropy. And, um, and also the other people that were working in, in the same field, they were banned and uh, stopped from working on it. And so in 1977, when I developed this theory, um, there was no trace of what Luigi Fantapier had developed. And I developed it by myself as a consequence of this very deep existential crisis. Well, I, I thought that this theory would have been, in a way, extremely well accepted in the field of life sciences. Uh, so I enrolled in psychology and I was deeply disappointed. Then I did a PhD in statistics and the dean of the faculty that was had been a good friend of Luigi Fantapier, when he saw my work, he said, this is the theory of Luigi Fantapier. You're working on that theory, but it was very difficult to find anything about this um, uh, theory that Luigi Fantapier named syntropy, combining the two Greek words, scene that means converging, and tropos that means tendency. And uh, so I developed this theory in the field of statistics, because in, in, in statistics, there are two types of techniques that can be used, parametric statistics and non-parametric statistics. Parametric statistics works very well with entropic uh, systems, whereas non-parametric applies very well to this field of syntropy. Well, anyhow, I was, I, I did a very good work with the Dean of the Faculty of Statistics, but then he died and no one was interested in this theory. And uh, I was alone with it uh, because no one really could understand this idea of energy flowing backward in time and what was so important about it. And um, I had some very, very strange coincidences, like in uh, 1996, I wrote a novel that described the transition from an entropic society to a syntropic society, which was, uh, in a way, a, a science fiction novel. 
And the only group that really got interested in it was a Sai Baba group. I don't know if you know anything about Sai Baba. He's an Indian spiritual uh, leader. And uh, No, I don't know what that is. Uh, they were convinced that it was not me huh. that had written that book, that it, but it was Sai Baba. So that was a, a very, very strange situation. <laughs> then <laughs> then uh, in 2001, I really was on the point of uh, stopping this work on syntropy. When I met Antonella, she became my wife. And as a wedding gift, I gave her the possibility to go back to university. And she was not interested in syntropy at all. She enrolled in cognitive psychology, but then she in a way slid on the equation that from which syntropy starts. And her first thesis was uh, titled From Mechanical to Life Sciences, uh, Entropy and Syntropy from Mechanical to Life Sciences. Then she did a master's thesis on this subject and a PhD. And what was interesting is that in the PhD, she developed uh, some experimental designs that are very easy to replicate. Uh, in order to test the uh, hypothesis of syntropy. Well, uh, the hypothesis on which she was working was if life is sustained by syntropy and syntropy flows backward in time, the autonomic nervous system that supports life functions should react in advance to future stimuli. And when you uh, devise experiments when you, where you have uh, stimuli that are randomized, you have no way to know what you will see, uh, say, in two seconds, five seconds, or what. And you combine emotional and neutral stimuli. What comes out, and it's a very strong effect, you don't even need statistics to see this effect, is that the heart rate and the skin conductance react in advance to emotional stimuli. So it seems like if we have two channels from which we get information, one which is the traditional one that is processed by our head and is based on cause and effect relations, and another channel that is based on the autonomic nervous system that we usually name the heart, the heart channel, that allows us to feel the future. Uh, but it allows us just to feel the future, not to know the future. So we're constantly in between information that comes from the past and feelings that come from the future uh, and which attract us in uh, specific directions. And we constantly have to decide which one to choose. And according to this model, free will would arise from this constant state of choice in which we are placed. Uh, we have to decide if we want to follow our head or our heart. 
And um, from this, uh, all our description of intuition comes out because intuition would be feeling the future. Um, Henry Poincaré wrote a lot about intuition and he said, well, when you're facing a new mathematical problem, the possibilities are infinite and there is no way uh, from a rational point of view that you can test all possible different possibilities. Instead, what happens is that at a certain point, you stop, you start doing different things, and suddenly you feel a feeling of truth that leads you in a specific direction. You don't know why, but in that direction, you find the solution. What I find interesting is that it is like if we have a compass in our uh, autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. If we're going in the right direction, we feel warmth and well-being in this area because syntropy is converging energy. So when we are converging towards the aim, we feel this uh, feeling of warmth that is also well-being because it supports our vital functions. If we diverge and we go in a direction which is um, it, it not it doesn't aim to our final aim to our attractor. We feel emptiness and void in this area that is usually named anxiety or an anguish. And so these feelings can be used to direct your choices when you feel this. Uh, well-being and warmth, it means that you're on the right track. Do you have any questions at this point? <laughs> well, there's so many, so many things to discuss here. It's, it's, uh, I, I find it a really elegant uh, way of viewing things, and it corresponds with a lot of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, one of the primary issues that I think is worth exploring is just exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about time. I've sent you that paper about the uh, trigrams, which is something I don't want to talk about too much here, but I originally had modeled the trigram using a time model. Yes. And eventually I realized that it was it was cumbersome and caused a lot of confusion that was unnecessary because basically we're talking about uh, configurations within consciousness. And so the question as to what the actual reality of time is is something that I've thought about a fair amount. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you envision time. Uh, it sounds like basically you're thinking of it in, in somewhat of a, of a standard sense of a timeline, that there is a past, a future, a present, which is the thing that we're sort of standing on, if you like. And, uh, and that in the entropic model, we're moving from the past to the future. In the syntropic model, we're moving from the future to the past. Is that well, uh, a um, good way to summarize it? Yes, uh, maybe yes, but I have to say something more. Um, according to this entropy-syntropy model, there is a continuous interplay between entropy and syntropy. For example, if you get think about metabolism, you have catabolic processes which are entropic and anabolic processes which are syntropic. And there is a continuous 
um, moving from entropic to syntropic processes. And uh, this would be the reason why everything vibrates in the universe, because it's constantly uh, uh, moving from a situation of expansion to a situation of contraction. And my uh, cosmological view of the universe is of a universe that vibrates between a, a big bang and big crunch and, and that forever, forever in the future and in the past. And um, I see also the atoms as vibrating systems, uh, not with particles going around, but a system that expands and contracts. Now, uh, when it expands, time flows forward. When it contracts, Time flows backwards. So uh, time is a variable. It can flow in very different ways. And um, depending on how we look at it, for example, the time of in quantum fix physics could be seen as a unitary time because it's diverging and converging, but as, at a speed which is so fast that we see it just as a unitary time. Uh, at our level, now we experience forward in time, uh, flow of time, uh, of time. but uh, at a certain point, the universe will stop expanding and then time will start flowing backwards. Uh, this is how I envision it in this moment. There's a kind of standard way of viewing time that uh, you could say is uh, popularized in a lot of uh, films and that sort of thing when they talk about time travel and that sort of thing as if it were uh, something that's laid out like a line. But that's not really what you're talking about. You're talking about kind of the reversal of a variable within an equation, really, fundamentally, yes, if yes, I'm understanding yes. correctly. And so uh, it's just a question of the value of that variable, whether it's increasing or decreasing. Yes. And you're saying that there's a, a universal envelope that would be kind of the, the scalar within which we're all uh, existing. And that has its kind of large scale expansion contraction pattern. If I understand correctly, you're saying that there also may be variations on that expansion contraction pattern. So it's not as if it's just a scalar opening, just a scalar closing. Like one of the things that I know some people are looking into is Halton Arp's observation on redshifts, uh, that maybe redshift isn't as clear-cut as we think, like to correlate it with the Doppler effect and to think of that as being the basis for seeing the universe as expanding. Maybe we weren't completely on the mark there. There's some question because there are some objects that have redshift, blue shift. There's a number of different, there, there's some objects which are connected that have redshift as part of it. Blue shift is another part of it. There are uh, anomalies in redshift that suggest that maybe it's not necessarily correlated to an expanding universe. When you analyze the redshift, uh, of the stars, and you don't uh, consider the fact that time is a variable, you end uh, to the conclusion that the universe is expanding in an endless way. But when you consider that 
uh, time is a variable, uh, the acceleration uh, can be considered as a, um, say, factor of time when you, uh, because time is also space. And um, uh, then, uh, then uh, it comes back that this model of the universe that expands and contracts, expands and contracts, is plausible. We see an expanding universe, but, but it's an illusion that we get because we are living in a universe that doesn't have a fixed time, but has a variable hmm. time. Well, certainly from an observational point of view, that's absolutely... Uh, and one of the things I've always asked whenever uh, I meet someone who's interested in this, uh, and I've met a few uh, astrophysicists and annoyed them by saying things like, well, how do we know that the objects that we're viewing that are billions of light years away are still in the state that we are seeing them in now? Because we're basically getting information from billions of years ago. Yes. And so if the if the universe started to contract we wouldn't get the information from that area until until it was a long time after that. Yes. So that it's quite possible that 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 what we're viewing in these ancient light artifacts, the objects that were originally emitting that information are in a completely different state than we're viewing them now. Yes. Yes. I totally agree with this. But but it doesn't necessarily mean that there are different frames of actual time in the universe. It just means that our observational capacities are limited. Yes. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes, I agree with that. And, uh, you know, be, before I was telling you about the atom that can be seen as a vibrating system. And uh, mm -hmm. if you imagine yourself getting into the atom, time would flow in a totally different way. It would be much, much faster. And so one of ideas that I have is that probably in the atom, we have the same complexity that we have in our universe. And uh, our universe is nothing else than an atom uh, which expands and there are many other atoms expanding and contracting in, in parallel. I love that idea. It seems... It seems quite, uh, I mean, there's a number of uh, other theories out there that have beautiful overlap with this. Uh, for instance, there's a guy named Ken Wheeler. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes, I, not, not familiar, but I know him, yes. Yeah, so he basically talks about the geometry of electromagnetic phenomena. And he yes. has a number of experimental devices where you can visualize very clearly what that field looks like. And he talks about a conjugate ge geometry that is the elemental geometry uh, within nature, that all atoms have this basic geometry, that all universes have this basic geometry. And uh, he's very much on the Oliver heavy side kind of side of things. Uh, mm -hmm. Tesla, heavy side, Steinmetz, that whole crew is is basically where he's deriving his and he wrote a a, a book that's called something like um, Uncovering the Missing Secrets of Magnetism. He's a yes. bizarre and interesting character, uh, and and it has that kind of sense of yes, this is there's a basic geometry that happens at a variety of different scales, it was sort of like a holographic type of of model uh, throughout the universe, and uh, and then you have someone like um, 
I'm trying to remember the name of him, Nassim uh, uh, Hariman, who has this notion that each uh, proton contains within it the energy equivalency of the entire universe, <laughs> which is also another kind of interesting way of, of seeing the reflection of the macro and the micro as being directly linked. Yes, yes. And there was a sentence of Rumi saying that uh, huh. we are a drop of, uh, in the universe, but we are also the universe. And uh, yeah. so we can see it in, in both directions. It's, um, usually the problem is that when we compare ourselves with the universe, we feel to be equal to zero. And this is one of the reasons why fee people feel depressed, because they realize they're equal to zero. Uh, but at the same time, we have all the universe inside ourselves. And um, I don't know if you want to move to psychology now. And, There's a very uh, neat uh, transition point here because the uh, you could say that the atom atomization uh, way of looking at things, where things are separated, which is kind of the entropic, you know, the entropic uh, timeline is where things are uh, dissipating. Yes. Right, moving away from a center, and that would would uh, if you look at the totality of the universe, you think of yourself as being one little dissipated part of it that's kind of disconnecting from the rest, dispersing. Everything is off in its own little zone, right? And so that would lead to a feeling of of despair. <laughs> uh, whereas a centropic model, everything is connected. And therefore, you're seeing the relationship between things, which is a kind of convergence, whether they're moving towards each other or not. And so on a psychological level, there's a warmer feeling of connectedness, even though you're just a tiny little piece of that web. Yes. Uh, well, that was one of the reasons why uh, this model helped me to come out from the, my existential crisis, because my mm. existential crisis was on a side the feeling that I was equal to nothing, that I had no value, no meaning, no purpose. And this comes out from the fact that when we compare ourselves to this very big universe, we realize that we're equal to zero. But what Syntropy says is that beside comparing ourselves, we can also unite ourselves. So when we compare when we're united to the universe and we compare ourselves to it, our identi identity remains. We're equal to ourselves, so we don't lose our identity. I should show you this with an equation, but this was one of the fundamental insights that made me so interested in this model because it said we have a purpose, we have a meaning. Life is not just the result of chance, but it is aiming towards attractors. And um, I would love to see that equation. Yes, uh, I, that that would be fascinating to uh, to explore uh, yes. because you know being able to derive that kind of meaning from a mathematical equation is something that is. Uh, you know, rarely done. It's just not the way people typically view mathematical formulations. But I think that mm -hmm. uh, so things like that are encoded in there. Like one of the things that you do uh, in one of your papers has to do with 
the the concept that there's a unity of energy availability that could be thought of as one, and then yes. that is essentially entropy plus, or, or sorry, it's a centropy minus entropy. Correct. Yes. Yes. Well, and, uh, you know, often when we talk about entropy and syntropy, one thinks that entropy is bad and syntropy is good. Right. Instead, uh, if if we look at in the equation, we have energy, which is a unity. You cannot create or destroy energy. Uh, and this is the first law of thermodynamics. And in the equation, energy has these two manifestations. One is syntropic and one is entropic. So we can write energy as the sum of syntropy and entropy. Uh, this means that uh, entropy and syntropy are complementary because I can write syntropy equal one minus entropy and the same I can right. do is with entropy. From a graphical point of view, we can uh, uh, represent this with a um, seesaw. Uh, you know, you can uh, uh -huh. have a balance between entropy and syntropy. And this provides some very interesting tools because one of the big problems that we are faced with is that we have big difficulties in acting on the invisible spiritual level because we were working from the material point of view. But what this model says is that if we reduce our entropy, automatically syntropy uh, rises. So the invisible right. side of reality requires that we reduce the entropy in our life. And that probably is, is one of the reasons why some of the uh, big people in recent history, like for example, get Steve Jobs, he was living in a minimalist way. And this was needed for him to feel these inner feelings that were giving him intuitions. The same can be said with Elon Musk. Uh, he's maybe the richest man in the world, but he considers uh, essential minimalist life uh, a key element for his uh, intuitions. He recently announced that he's like uh, selling his, uh, most of his possessions, uh, getting rid of most of his possessions, I believe. Yeah. Well, yes, he did, he did sell all his possessions and he's living in a container, in a very small container now. And uh, huh. he, he often doesn't go even to this very small container where he uh, lives because he just sleeps on the floor of the of his factories, um, you know, it's uh -huh. um, it's very, uh, it, it must be very difficult to live with them. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yes. For a number of reasons. <laughs> but uh, if we manage to reduce our entropy in our life, this invisible uh, side uh, grows. It provides us with intuitions, with aims, with purposes but it also provides us with synchronicities, which is something that I found fascinating because the causality that acts from the future is invisible to, it, to us. And the way how we see it, we see it as 
very strange coincidences that have a purpose, that they're leading us in a direction. And um, when uh, you're able to reduce your entropy and activate uh, the synchronicities, in a way, they lead you, uh, they help you in your path. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're not alone, but you're guided by the future. Mm Uh, even if you don't understand how it works, why, but then you learn to trust this help that you can receive from the future, but you receive it when you learn to reduce your entropy. So one of the things, for example, in my life is that I've always been very careful in reducing my entropy. A lot of my choices like being a vegetarian, but many other choices were motivated by reducing the entropy in my life. And also one thing that I like a lot is silence, which is a way, (laughs) (laughs) something that helps me a lot to uh, uh, concentrate uh, on these inner feelings. Yeah, I I need more silence. Yes. We have three dogs here, and and uh, and silence is very difficult to uh, enforce. Let's say. Well, I have a dog here and now in this room that is coming uh-huh. up to me, and it wants to be cuddled, and uh, so there, there is some something going around. A distraction. That, <laughs> yes. Well, don't get more than two dogs. That's my advice. It's interesting how this corresponds with uh, some you know, ancient spiritual ideas, the idea of reducing entropy to facilitate the rising of syntropy. Like the the rising of syntropy is therefore sort of not an active thing. It's something that you receive. You're essentially, uh, your job is to stop doing the stuff that you would normally be doing. Your job is to is to dismantle the uh, temporally conditioned part of yourself where uh, the feeling of needing to be busy, of needing to have all this stuff happening in your head, all of that is resisted and you're slowly dismantling those things so that you can be receptive to, you know, in the in the uh in the ancient world it would be thought of as this divine inspiration. Yes, yes, maybe you can I agree totally in this kind of description is something that it is very important for my personal life. I I feel I have experienced that life has a purpose and you can be helped and guided in this um, path of life. And uh, I have an idea of evolution, which is, uh, say, quite different. Like my, my idea is that we have attractors in the future, towards where converging. And this is not only at the psychological level, but all what is living is in a way moved by attractors. And and these attractors would organize themselves like you would have an attractor for a person, but this attractor would be linked to the attractor of say the human beings. And then a hierarchy that uh, gradually uh, arrives to the final attractor, which I personally name love, 
But for example, um, I don't know if you know Teilhard de Chardin, he used to name this final tractor the Omega Point. Uh, mm. Teilhard de Chardin was a Jesuit priest, but also a paleontologist. And when he came out with this idea about the Omega Point, that in a way attracts life and the evolution, so life would be created from the future and not from the past. And he said that the Genesis had to be read in in a opposite way, because we hmm. should not think about the past, uh, but about the future. Well, the Vatican just sent him to China. <laughs> they they forbid the reading of all his books. They were removed from libraries. And uh, so it was another person that was censored. And in a way, a lot of his ideas are very similar to those that you find with, uh, in the field of syntropy. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like the the pattern keeps repeating itself. I know that uh, this theme was well described by Philip K. Dick in one of his books, Vallis, where uh, he describes there being a, a a conflict, a universal conflict, a archetypical conflict between what he calls the logos and uh, the iron prison, I think is the way he describes mm -hmm. it. So like institutional inertia, you could say, is something which has a actively dampening effect on uh, the inspirational potential that we might call syntropy, something along those lines. <laughs> and that every moment in time, that, that battle is happening. Yes. I, I saw that you had a uh, a quotation from uh, de Chardin in one of your papers where he wrote, right now, as in Galileo's days, another instance of this kind of uh, conflict between institution and, uh, mm -hmm. you might say, inspiration, right now, as in Galileo's days, what is most essential is a new way of thinking tied to a new way of acting. Mm -hmm. And I think that that particularly when you know we reach civilizational crisis, which we pretty clearly are in the midst of, uh, it couldn't well, we, be we're more totally clear. We're totally in that... a civilization crisis now. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Yes. Um, well, uh, unfortunately, I've seen with myself that the institutions have not helped at all with syntropy. Like, for example, we have been censored in Wikipedia since 2005. Uh, if you search syntropy on Wikipedia, it goes to negentropy, which is a totally different concept, and you cannot build a syntropy page. And that is not only in English, it is in Italian and in many other languages. And um, when Antonella came up with the first results of her experiments, they were so strong, the results, and could be so easily replicated. But the reaction was fear, because no one wanted to be associated with that theory. And, uh, and she was attacked, not at a scientific level, but at a personal level. Uh, so what we have discovered is that um, there is something that the institution don't like about syntropy, and they 
besides censoring you, they tend to attack you at a personal level. But um, the crisis we are in, in my opinion, is mainly a crisis that is caused by the fact that we're so strongly unbalanced towards entropy. And we should learn to balance together entropy and syntropy. And this requires a deep change in, in the life of people. And uh, probably the crisis we are now going through will uh, help uh, serve people to move in this direction. So if the practice in essence is to uh, at least mitigate the effects of entropy, to start to dismantle the encumbrances in our lives that mm. uh, that drag us down, you might say, yeah. to some extent we still need to maintain entropic activity, right? Certainly. Because Certainly. it is a balance, right? So yes. how how do we describe that line? Like, how do you figure out what is the appropriate amount of entropy to allow into one's life? How do we uh, come to a relationship with these institutions that are so oppressive and that have uh, a real problem with heterodoxy? What's the right attitude to adopt towards them? Because it seems like pretty clearly if you become combative with these institutions, it just turns into a nightmare. Like it almost never <laughs> really works out well for anyone. So, yes, um, yes. so I'm wondering what you have to say about those issues. Well, um, first about the first point is in your personal life, uh, you can you always make choices, and each choice you make has an entropic component. An asymptotic one. Now, um, people might find it difficult to reduce their their entropy because they 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 they're not able to look from the outside of their life. And uh, I've helped a lot of people to reduce their entropy, and it is a process that is, in a way, magic because when you reduce your entropy you start saving a lot of money, you have less expenses, but the syntropic side starts coming in and it provides intuitions, it provides projects, aims, purposes that can bring a lot of wealth to the person. The problem is that a lot of times when a person uh, moves from a situation of poverty, to a situation when there is a flow of wealth that arrives, they then want to live in an entropic way. And it, it all turns backwards and you <laughs> go back in the crisis. So I like a uh, lot of people like Steve Jobs and uh, Elon Musk that they say the money I have is not my money, but it is the money that I have to use for the aim, the project I'm uh, following. So the, the point is that we have to shift from a view where we put ourselves to, to the center to a view where we serve, uh, say, this invisible side of reality that uh, gives, gives us a direction. Then instead from a say more geopolitical perspective, uh, 
I have worked a lot with the Chinese culture and I've spent some time in China and I was fascinated by the way how they work for the well-being of the people. They think in a collective way, but not because it is a communist country, but because they have their roots in the Confucian uh, reality that is um, has this kind of framework. Now, um, some people say that in China, this collective framework comes out from the fact that when you your agriculture is based on rice, you need to learn to cooperate with other people. Instead, when you're farming wheat, you can be very uh, independent and develop an individualistic uh, view of life. So it could be, you know, things mm. like this. But uh, there is a that's interesting. There is a deep difference between these two cultures, and I, even if China is now so entropic for many ways. But uh, it is rooted in a profoundly syntropic culture. They uh, give a big value to all what it is invisible, to, to your inner feelings. For example, one thing that I found amazing was what they call the guanxi. That means close relations. Uh, since you're a little kid, uh, for example, your parents, your grandparents, they give you a red envelope with some money in it uh, as a present. But you know that the money is not for you, but it is also for the other people that you deeply trust in your heart. And so giving and receiving money, they start developing networks of people that you deeply trust. And, uh, and that is a element that is uh, a key element of the Chinese culture, that it is trust. You must be surrounded by people that you deeply trust, that you're capable to give your money to them because you have no fear of giving your money to them. Instead, here in the West, uh, we don't have yeah. trust. No, trust is, and yeah. Trust has been just destroyed. And, you know, it used to be that uh, in the United States, we had this concept of in God we trust, which has also been yes. completely lost now, I think, uh, for much of the country, at least. So, yeah, we are at a trust crisis. Yes. For example, in China, they don't never sign contracts because they mm. say if you sign a contract, it means that you don't trust me. So uh, all the business is done on this, say, very informal level where, where there is nothing written and which is very difficult for Westerners to understand and to accept. So I feel there are two main polarities in the world. The West, which is very entropic, and the East, which is more syntropic. And we should, in a way, learn. I would say I, we should learn a lot from the East culture. 
then there are other topics that are, are in a way more complex. And I don't know if it is the case to talk about them, but working on this topic of energy, you, you find out that these vibrations of entropy and syntropy are not only at the level of the atom or what, but for example, also at the level of the sun. The sun hmm. emissions are not at all constant. There, there are vibrations. And uh, this explains, for example, the uh, glacial and uh, interglacial periods. And according to astrophysicists working in this field, we're getting very near to the next uh, glacial period. And a lot of what is happening now could be explained from this point of view is that, but um, I don't want to get in it now. Well, um, yeah, there's a lot of different, I mean, there's some way in which you could say that because of the, the nested scalar aspect of reality, that, uh, that maybe the attractor is something which is at that higher scale, you know? So what's happening yes. on planet Earth, there are these large cycles that have little to do with our sense of contemporary history, right? So we think quite often yes. of political issues, like we were talking a, a moment before about the disintegration of the West being very entropic, and it's really, it's getting quite pronounced right now. It's so clear that the West is falling to pieces. And that the the East has a greater syntropic property now. Of course, you know it's been in in the past. It's been opposite, right? Yes. Uh, there've been there, they had the long warring period in China, you know, and and certainly the West had its moment of of uh, synergy and of of kind of a sense of purpose and and direction. But that uh, that this that you know because of this uh, larger world that we're in, and then of course the solar system. Uh, has its patterns as well, and then we have uh, larger galactic patterns, probably, and and then of course the <laughs> universe as well. All of these things suggest that you know, on a universal level, there would be that kind of omega point, the ultimate telios, the yeah, yes, uh, yes. a final attractor, I guess you could say. <laughs> yes, yes, I would call it that way. But the path towards the final attractor is not a linear path. It can be very mm. complex, and uh, in a way, suffering has a role in it. Mm. For example, I came to the intuition of this theory because of my existential suffering. People would not change if they don't suffer. So in a way, uh, if we want to arrive to the omega point, which I, I would say, is a state of love uh, and happiness, but the path can be very complex and there can be also a lot of suffering. So in a way, we can also say that this huge crisis we're witnesses, witnessing in the West with a lot of suffering now in the West is necessary to push people to change and go towards a new vision of reality. Right. And that that's a vision for the purpose of suffering in the world. 
that that without it, without the darkness, there would be no potential to move towards the light, which is a theme that just came up in a, in a in an episode I just recorded where we were discussing the ideas of Rudolf Steiner, who's not someone I'm a big fan of, but um, but who has some very interesting ideas, and it had to do with this sense of the dynamic between the Luciferian and the Aramonic uh, spiritual entities, if you like. So so this yes. kind of sense of these uh, archetypical characters throughout history that are also playing in this in this interplay you could basically you could call aramonic entropic and you could call the luciferian the syntropic and you could say the christic which is his sort of resolution is that middle path finding that balance which is what's necessary for life yes Uh, it's amazing it's amazing how so many of these ideas overlap it would be wonderful if we could all kind of come together and agree on a common language i think there would be so much more well, I, a larger number of people in agreement, if we could find a way to bridge the languages between these things, mm-hmm. or, or at least to have an, a, nice, a nice way of being able to see the correspondences, uh, like a collective, if you like. It might be an interesting thing, uh, a, a project for your, for the, uh, I'm trying to remember. A permanent conference. Yes, yes, I'm looking up the name, <laughs> the permanent <laughs> yes, conference. Yes. On life, energy, syntropy, and resonance. Well, uh, you know, I've not, uh, I've not invested much on it, so I've done okay. some <laughs> uh, interviews, and uh, uh, so the audience is is not much. But I had some positive reaction to it. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I, I must say, I think that this entropy syntropy model is not at all new. It has existed for uh, millennia. If you think about yin and yang, one is entropic, the other is entropic, but they're part of mm-hmm. unity. If you think about Shiva, yes, I see it. Yes. <laughs> well, that is entropy and syntropy, and one is in the other. So the, you can yeah. never uh, That's right. consider them separately. They can't be separated. Yeah, then that, that fits in perfectly. So, you know, traditionally it might have been called order and chaos, if you like. Yes. Uh, But it also fits in perfectly with with Ken Wheeler's, you know, the magnetic torus and the dielectric hypertropoid. Yes. Just as a... a, uh, And I think also it's worth mentioning, like, you can uh, relate that to Bagua. The prenatal would be the syntropic. uh, The postnatal would be entropic. It's just, it's amazing, yeah. Th- this is clearly uh, a a concept that has traveled through time and that inspires people on a regular basis. Yes, and uh, uh, people have used so many different languages to describe the same thing. What I find interesting about uh, this entropy syntropy model is that it is based on the fundamental equations of energy. So it has. Um, something more that can be very helpful to unite uh, all these different languages. And the other point is that uh, entropy is more linked to the materialistic world, where syntropy is more linked to this uh, spiritual world. And it provides, in my opinion, the possibility to have a convergence, to have, say, the science and religion to come together in a new perspective mm. uh, of life and of the world. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I've often thought that 
the key to integrating a spiritual perspective into physics is within the time domain. Because uh, the way I see it, and I don't know if you would agree with this, fundamentally time is an artifact of consciousness. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we have, uh, in essence, only the present frame that actually exists ontologically. There is no ontological past or future in a, in a physical domain. If you're talking about physics, right, you're talking about what physically exists. So, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a, a past and a future that occurs within consciousness. And you could say that if consciousness is a fundamental substrate of the universe... Well, then there is an existing future and past, but it's just not physical, right? We could say mm-hmm. that it's uh, it's in a spiritual domain, you know, that the, the word spiritual, I think, of course, will always be a stumbling block for, you know, the, the people within the realm of mainstream physics. Maybe there's another way of, 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 of you know, just characterizing it as, as more of a... Uh, an aspect of consciousness, because I think there's some, at least there's some people within the sciences who recognize consciousness as being real. Uh, and it <laughs> seems on a philosophical level that basically consciousness is the only thing that we <laughs> truly know is real. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so it seems like there's there's a lot of um, of potential to kind of work in there and and really get into the hard sciences. Uh, with with that kind of an entryway, potentially, you know, mm-hmm. time seems to be that, but but it requires a completely different way of viewing time. Yes, um, I agree with what you have just said, and uh, no, I I think it is possible to integrate very different fields, like say physics, uh, psychology and uh, life, er everything can work together, but it requires a perspective that is profoundly different from the one that we have now. So uh, if we continue trying to explain life and uh, consciousness in a mechanistic way, we will just remain blocked in uh, entropy. Instead, we have to... Uh um get out and accept that causality works in a very different way i usually give the name of super causality that you have these causes from the past attractors from the future there is always a interaction that creates very incredible possi- possibilities and complexities and mm-hmm. uh, and life uh, and it's not determined because this constant interaction provides many different possibilities. Mm-hmm. I have the impression that a lot of people are now suffering because the mechanistic view of life doesn't provide any purpose and meaning to life. So we are just the consequence of chance and uh, nothing else. Instead, when you get into this other uh, way of looking to reality, one of the key elements is that we have a name, a finality, and a purpose. And happiness has to do with discovering which is our purpose and try to accomplish it. Mm. Absolutely. It seems like one of the great challenges, of course, would be to... um, 
uh, to find a language that everyone could agree on. You know, uh, from a from a like a biblical point of view, we're living in Babylon again. You know, we have mm-hmm. uh, a confusion of tongues. And so while I think there are many of us who are coming to the same basic conclusion, we've done so on the basis of a different pathway, a different set of terms, sometimes, of course, you know, a different uh, mother tongue, if you like, Uh, but uh, we can find so much in agreement because there's basically the same vision. And so Mm -hmm. then the question is just simply, well, what is the best way to express this so that... uh, you know, I mean, the thing that I love about the the Bagua is that uh, it it's a language that isn't in any other language, and it's incredibly elegant and simple. Mm-hmm. Of, unfortunately, you have to explain it, and that's where it gets difficult. You know, yes, so yes, yes. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think of that as being maybe uh, the primary challenge, and in particular, I think to express it to young people. Of course, that's always uh, the future of humanity. <laughs> uh, but a lot, but it rests on those of us who are older to provide something for the young. And I think that's where we're really in trouble right now because um, many young people are feeling the desperation of that entropic worldview. And, you know, the isolation, particularly, you know, you have this profound isolation that's occurred recently due to COVID mm-hmm. uh, and the alienation that's that's happening as a result of this sense of of danger at every human contact. You know, <laughs> this is a, a seriously demoralizing and uh, destructive influence on the psychology of of everyone. But I think young people in particular, and of course, that will really, to a large extent, shape the world that we're moving into. It's an incredibly complex situation. Uh, I see it also in Italy, people that are pressed in a incredible way to vaccinate and just we have a terroristic information that uh, in order to push people in that direction but this incredibly terroristic information really damages people because people have been living in fear in the last year and a half and uh, and this is in my point of view the highest expression of entropy, what we have been observing in the last year and a half. And uh, I have my views in this in this field. There is um, quite a big discussion, like with the, they've made uh, vaccination compulsory for doctors in Italy, but more than 50,000 doctors working for the public health system are refusing to be vaccinated. And one of the reasons is that there are therapies to cure uh, COVID. Uh, like China is an example. They, uh, COVID started there, but they found the ways to cure COVID. And since the beginning of February 2020, they don't have any more cases. Because when someone becomes positive, he is immediately cured and the problem is solved. So their uh, line is just flat since 2020. Instead, in the West, what we had is that all the therapeutical protocols were stopped 
in order to force the idea that there was no solution to COVID, and in order to force the idea that only the vaccine was the solution. And this has really damaged deeply society because it has forced lockdowns, it has uh, spread fear, but also people that are not hugging themselves, they're not uh, together and there is isolation, loneliness, and it is something just terrible for society. You go to China and you see that there is no isolation. Everyone is free now. They can uh, hug, be together, they can dance. And that because when there are positive cases of COVID, they're immediately treated. And uh, uh, these therapeutical protocols, they're public. They're not a secret only for Chinese people, only that we right. are, they have become forbidden to be used in the West. Yeah, there's a, it, there's a certain amount of challenge to that now. I, I don't know if you've uh, seen the, um, the whole ivermectin story has really started to take on a certain amount of life here. And um, uh, we have a, a relatively, uh, a number of well-known podcasters who have interviewed some of the key uh, medical professionals. And uh, we had, for instance, uh, Dr. Pierre Corey and, um, and Brett Weinstein had a very long discussion about uh, the benefits of ivermectin and the consequences of having this emergency use authorization of the vaccines based upon the idea that there wasn't any real treatment for it. And um, and Joe Rogan picked that up. So there's actually, a, I think, a fair number of people now who have been made aware that uh, something ain't right here. Yes. Uh, and it's it's interesting also that you know China was criticized so harshly initially for its by some for its uh, and and by others they were praised I, I suppose for their their uh, severe lockdowns where they basically you know lock people in there literally put bars over the windows and doors of of apartment buildings and that sort of thing but it does seem like they've got it way better under control and you know kind of getting back to some of this dynamic between the west and between uh you know the rising power of china a lot of people criticize china for being this totalitarian state uh, but we're seeing totalitarian tendencies here in the West now, where essentially... Well, you, you know, I, as I told you before, I've worked a lot with Chinese people. And what they often were saying, telling me is that uh, in, in the West, we don't realize it, but we are in a totalitarian system. In China, they live in a communist system, but they know what the elements, they know who is moving behind, who is working behind, uh, who is uh, in power. Instead, what we have here in the West is that we're realizing now that, uh, for example, in Italy, we're discovering now that the parliament has no real power. Uh, we have a prime minister, which, which is Mario Draghi. He was the head of the uh, Central European Bank, and he yeah. decides everything by himself. So the only power is, uh, in a way, linked to who had the money, the power of money, and the people in Parliament. They were just puppets; not uh, they have no voice. And um, 
And we are realizing now this, we're opening our eyes and understanding that we've been in a system which is very different from how they were telling us it was. Yep. Well, from a traditional point of view, you could say that, that uh, you know, Babylon, so New Babylon, is a land of idols. And, of course, the one of the prime idols is money. Yes. And, uh, you know, and... And the, the idea that you cannot serve two masters, it's either going to be God or money, is the way it was phrased originally. Uh, it, it seems that fundamentally our, our civilizations have crumbled because people are motivated entirely by money. Yes. And that's what determines, you know, we allowed, I mean, for so long here in the United States has all been all this talk on, on the progressive left of getting money out of politics. And it's, we haven't gotten anywhere on that. <laughs> just it's impossible because they they have you know they have brutal techniques at their disposal and uh and there's always someone willing to take a paycheck to do something terrible mm -hmm. and people are afraid to lose their paycheck because there's so many people living on the streets already so it's just a very yes, very yes. troubling situation uh, well that is in a in a way happening also here in italy but going back to entropy and syntropy Mm -hmm. uh, what I find interesting, what I understood is that this interplay of entropy and syntropy, it manifests, for example, if you get metabolism, you have catabolic and anabolic. Yeah, maybe we could just define those terms because not everyone knows what they mean. Well, catabolic, uh, uh, in metabolism, you have a phase when structure are distracted and... Um, what the leftover is, you know, eliminated. And energy is released, right? Released and also matter is released. Mm -hmm. With anabolic, uh, energy and matter are acquired and they're built together in an ordered system. So there's always this exchange of matter and energy with life that it is caused by this interplay between entropy and syntropy. Mm. Entropy and syntropy playing together, they cause this exchange of energy and matter and information also. So what an element which is vital for life is exchange. And But in order to exchange, you need to have a mean that allows you to exchange. For example, with plants, the mean is provided by water, and which allows for matter and energy to be to go out and come in. Mm. Uh, with animals, we have what we call lympha, the lymphatic system and the blood. Mm. In society, what provides the possibility to exchange is money. Mm. So who controls the money? controls also the life energy of people and nations. The real power is in who controls money. Now, this um, uh, money at the beginning, uh, it, it, you had coins that were minted by the states, the government, uh, so they were public owned. But then in China, in the 13th, uh, century, banks started to give banknotes in exchange for, uh, say, the precious 
metals that you were putting in the banks. And so mm. the banknotes were created. I didn't realize that was first an, another innovation of the Chinese. I had no idea. Yes, that was in the mm. 1300. And, uh, but this meant that you had a shift from coins, which were public, and money, which was private. So money were printed by private banks. And uh, Marco Polo, which was the Italian explorer that, that went to China, he described this system when he came back to Italy. And the first bank that started printing banknotes in Europe was a Swedish bank. Then as this system uh, expanded. And in England, in 1694, they united all the banks that were printing banknotes in the Bank of England. And uh, this was the first central bank in history. But this provided huge power to the bankers that owned the Bank of England, because the Bank of England is a private institution. Banks are private, and when you put them together, you get a private institution. And uh, if you go and see the war of independence between the U USA and England, it was mainly a war against the Bank of England because the Bank of England was just terrible. They didn't care of anything. They were just killing and destroying every, every, everything just to uh, get the power and get the money. Mm. And in the first article of the constitution of the USA, it is forbidden to start a central bank. Hmm. Only the tre treasury has the right to govern the money. Hmm. But then there was a fight between bankers. You had the Strauss, Ashtor, and Guggenheim on one side that were loyal to the constitution, and the Rockefeller, Rothschild, and Morgan that wanted the central bank, mm. and very strangely, all the bankers that were loyal to the American constitution, they died in uh, the accident of the Titanic. That's an unbelievable little piece of uh, historical fact. That's quite stunning. Yes, and soon after, the Fed was started. So the Fed is a private central bank that originally was only in the hands of the Rockefeller, Rothschild, and Morgan. And I think that big part of the problems that we have nowadays have to do with this system based on central banks. Mm -hmm. We should go back to a system where central banks are uh, public, and the money is governed by the treasury. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens in many countries, like, for example, China, Russia, Iran, uh, Syria, Venezuela, and yeah, all India. Yeah, uh, <laughs> all the, all the, the countries enemies. with bombs dropping on them, yeah. Well, they haven't started yes. with dropping uh, bombs on China yet, but yeah. <laughs> yes, and yeah. Uh, I think that the world in this moment is divided by... Uh, a part of the world that is based on private central banks and another part which is based on public uh, central banks. 
Right. And the great tension we have in this moment has to do with this. And at the end, is it has to do with the way how you control life energy, how you control syntropy. Mm. If you control it in a, say, for yourself, for your own gain, or you control money and syntropy for the well-being of all the population. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that extending to the well-being of the of the biosphere in general, uh, that yes. we have to see it as an integrated whole. And, and it, it occurs to me that that you know because life requires this balance between entropy and syntropy, fundamentally this this uh, money driven greed that uh, is trying to exercise control over the world will destroy itself. It seems like these types of things always destroy themselves ultimately because they're squeezing the life out of everything. So, you know, the idea that I think a lot of people feel that there's some sort of, um, you know, need to resist and to fight against this encroaching uh, totalitarianism. Uh, But I, I also see See, I, I, it seems to me that quite often all that does is it makes them, it gives them an opportunity to have a justification to come down even harder. Yes, I, I totally, I totally agree with this. I think that the worst thing that we can do is to embrace violence, and right. uh, because at that point we provide an excuse to have a violent reaction, and on that side. They have very strong, uh, say, tools. To use. <laughs> That's right. Now, yeah. what we have to uh, what we have to work is to, for example, reducing our entropy. In a way, we detach ourselves from money. But what it is amazing is that at the same time, doing that, you have uh, synchronicities, intuitions, and the invisible that comes in, and it brings you money. So it is a paradox because when you want to detach yourself from money, you create the conditions for worlds to come in your life, but you must keep the point and continue to live in a very essential and minimalist way and understand that the money that arrives to you is not for you, but it is for the purpose that you're following. Mm. And uh, and that is very difficult because I see that people are so attracted by money and living a very entropic lifestyle mm-hmm. that when money comes in, they forget everything and they go back to a very entropic uh, life. So- Let's talk about two things uh, around that issue because it seems like that's that's kind of getting to what it is that we can do, right? So, uh, yes. how would can you describe what you've done yourself? Like, how have you managed to uh, reduce the entropy in your life? Kind of a case study. Well, uh, well, uh, this has been done in many. Many different ways, and I don't think that my, what I've done with my life is an example that other people should follow. Everyone should find its own way. But uh, essentially, uh, one one first choice was to become vegetarian, to be very nature-oriented. So, for example, use a lot the bicycle or try to uh, create a job that doesn't 
require uh, to move a lot uh, around the country. And, um, but slowly I found ways to reduce my entropy. And I think that that has helped me a lot. Um, what uh, following this line is uh, one thing that I have learned is that people need some support to learn how to reduce their entropy because people are not conscious about the quantity of entropy they produce and they live in. So sometimes they uh, need some help. And um, so in, in, in my personal life, uh, the point was to center myself on the heart, to trust what's, what the heart was telling me to do and the direction I had to follow. Uh, this, I managed to do this a lot um, using techniques that are based on silence. Like one thing that helped me was um, Zen meditation. Um, well, but you know, I, I didn't search for it. It just came. Uh, I think that uh, things come to you when you need them and when you're ready to, to use them. And um, another thing I was a bit involved in, uh, uh, it was a, a Quakers in, uh, in Rome. That is mm. something very strange that they're based <laughs> on silence. <laughs> and, and, and the idea is that when you get the intuition, you start shaking you like a quake. And, um, but uh, at the same time, I uh, was a conscientious objector. And uh, so I refused any type of balance and uh, um, say these are some of the elements in my personal life. But as I say, this is with me and everyone has to follow its own path. Mm -hmm. Everyone has its own path. Yeah, I, um, uh, it's, I think it's great for people to hear uh whatever you know anyone who feels that they found something that's helped to resolve that existential crisis right uh yes to everyone has a different way of uh of doing that it, to whatever extent we're successful i think it's great for people to hear um whatever little details because sometimes things just click you know just the idea of like oh the bicycle you know that that could be something that you know what i mean it's very simple <laughs> thing that that uh is a way to start and I think starting is the hardest yes. part, you know. So just going, oh, okay, well, maybe I could just ride the bike instead, you know, that it can be that simple. Well, I, another thing that maybe at first might seem strange, but has deeply influenced my life is that it happened to me um, 35 years ago that a friend that was expelled by the family she asked me if I could host her one week and she stayed in my place for nearly 20 years and she had <laughs> and, and she had schizophrenia this oh, wow. uh, girl huh. and uh, what really uh, impressed me was the fear that people had uh, when they came 
close to a person with this kind of problems because people with these problems, what they do is that they are not able to play the um, social rules. So in a way they unveil the truth of people. They, they show how things really are. And, uh, and people are just terrorized about truth. They're constantly playing uh, according to social roles that they don't even know exist. They, they are in them. And um, so for me, it has been a fundamental experience because it has broken all the, say, the conventions and rules. And I had to redefine a lot. Another thing that, say, has helped me quite a bit was I was an exchange student in the USA in 75, 76. Where were you located? In Jefferson City, Missouri. Oh, okay. Uh, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And um, I came from a very, say, an environment with very big differences. And I uh, decided when I was very small that I had to understand things and not rely on what others were going to tell me. And that turned me in an atheist. So I went to Jefferson City, Missouri as an atheist. And uh, the first Sunday, my American mother said, oh, we're going to church. I said, oh, well, I I don't believe. And she said, "Uh, it is not allowed. (laughs) <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, so I decided to go every Sunday to church, but each Sunday to a different church. Huh. And after some time, the American mother came up to me and said, oh, we have discussed about it. But if you're atheist, it means that you're a communist. If you're a communist, it means that you're a devil. We want you to go away. Huh. And uh, wow, I found well, yes, it, yeah. it was a bit that's tough. the real fundamentalist. Yeah, <laughs> I, yes. you got, you got a real found, taste of America there. <laughs> well, uh, yes, in many ways, now something more happened. And uh, then the organizers of AFS, I was there with uh, AFS, which is American Field Service, they hosted me for a couple of weeks. Uh, to allow me to find another family. And they were extremely rich. They had two private planes, Cadillacs. And so I've been able to get a taste of that side of the USA. And then I found a family that hosted me for the remaining period, but they were a white family that was extremely poor because he had an accident. He had been seven days in hospital. He had debts with the banks that he was not able to repay. And so there was no food at home. We could only eat at the cafeteria in school because they didn't have money to buy food. And that is something that I had never seen in Italy because even in the most extremely poor families, there is always food. Uh, So it was a total novelty. Then at a certain point, I asked 
the American father, why they hosted me. And he said, if you help someone, Jesus Christ will save you. Hmm. So this was his answer. Well, I must say that uh, the, the kind of USA that I have seen in, those, in that year hmm. as an exchange student was dramatically different from the USA that I had in my idea when I was in Italy, because you know you have all this idea about Hollywood and uh, the the USA of being a, uh, the place of heaven of happiness. Instead, uh, what I've experienced was very different, and these uh, contrast were the elements that pushed me in the existential crisis mm. because I, I lost the idea of what was right and wrong, what was good and bad. And then when I came back to Italy, my uh, parents had just separated in a very bad way. So I didn't go back to the certainties I left and the existential crisis went on mm. and uh, until this model of syntropy came out and it provided me uh, an explanation and a solution to the existential crisis and this is the reason why it became so important for me and um, so what i think that is very different very important it it is to allow yourself to be exposed to extremely different ways different situations in order that you uh, are forced to change continuously your point of view. Absolutely. And to, to in some way or another, be confronted with reality and all of its, uh, the horror side of it, as well as the beauty side of it. You can't really just uh, separate the two and expect to have a comprehensive view of things. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, we've gone for, Thank I think, you. about an hour and a half. I feel like we could go yes. longer, but I'm trying to limit, uh, to some extent, the length of these uh, episodes. So I think this is a perfect place for us to conclude today. I hope maybe you would come on again at some point. And um, uh, and sure. I, I truly hope that we'll stay in touch and uh, keep up to date on what's happening. I, I want to know uh, where things are leading for you. And, uh, and I think uh, yes. to continue the dialogue would be a wonderful thing. So thanks so much for coming on the show. It has been a big pleasure, and I hope some of your audience will like and appreciate what we have talked about today. I think of that we can be certain, that there will be some who will certainly appreciate it, and probably a few who might get confused here and there, but um, that's what we're here to, uh, to do, to stimulate thought and to expose people to things that they perhaps hadn't considered before and to give them the courage to go and, uh, and live life. Yes. Well, um, uh, if anyone is interested to have more information, I have a website which is syntropy.org and, and there you can find more information. I will put that in the, uh, in the show note description. And thanks, for, thanks very much again. Wonderful to meet you and to have this conversation. Thank you. I would hope to join you again sometime. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, 
turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.